Welcome to What's Korean Cinema, episode 56 on Voice and a Blood Pledge. The whispers in the corridor do not stop. And the unrelated, unconnected girl, school, ghost, school, horror series out of Korea is on its fourth and fifth entry. 2005's Voice seems oddly well suited to be in the Whispering Corridor series, not only for its horror content, but when it comes to the theme of voices. 2009's A Blood Pledge put a pin in the series until its re-emergence in 2021. Is uh, Did it go out on a high? Well, we'll get to that as well. I'm Kenny B, and with me is Paul Quinn of Hangul Celluloid. We said to ourselves, or I said, we'll probably keep it at three, we'll do the three, and then I realized we've done three out of five, why not do four and five? And here we are. Exactly. Was this, uh, these two uh, revisitations to these uh, films, uh, has it been a while since you watched either of these, or do any of them go on sort of semi-constant rotation? Do you go back to Memento Mori, for instance, a little bit semi-frequently? Or? If, if I did the, the, the original three, if I was to revisit, I'd be more likely to visit Whisper and Corridors, or even more likely than that, Wishing Stairs. I always thought Wishing Stairs was my personal favorite of the original three. Memento Mori's okay, but after when I first saw it, I mean, I know we rewatched it to, to do the podcast and I felt better about it, but after my first watch, I wasn't that impressed with it. So it would have been the one that I would have gone back to less. But the, I haven't rewatched. Certainly a blood pledge. I saw it once and we'll talk about why I haven't gone back to it. I've gone back to the voice a couple of times, but not for a good few years. So it was almost like a a new thing for me as well. I'm um, divided so far in, in terms of which is my favorite. It's either Memento Mori or one of these that we're discussing tonight. Because uh, I thought Memento Mori was a nicely challenging dramatically layered film and challenging cinematically as well it didn't take the easy way out by exposing us to easy answers especially towards the end which i really really appreciate well we said this in in the podcast on it you know if you're aware that it's a drama first and foremost with other elements you're going to enjoy it a lot more than if you look at it for a horror and when i first watched it i was i was essentially looking for a horror movie which is why the second watch, I felt much, much better about it than I had the first time because I, I, I knew what I was going to expect. So I was I was looking for what I could get from that side of it, you know. And Whispering Corridors, I think, is something you return to as that is the trailblazer. That is the OG movie, the origin point. And it's a good movie despite, but sometimes that is stronger than even higher quality in the follow-ups, something that kicked it off, and, and it did so well. So, so, so I gave a Whispering Corridors is, uh, is neat to return to, just to flashback to, um, yeah. to how, it, how it all started and evolved. Uh, okay, we're gonna get into it for some contact information. I thought we'd uh, share, as we almost always do, uh, we are available as an audio commentary on the Mondo Macabro Blu-ray release of A Woman Chasing the Butterfly of Death by director Kim Ki-young. That is still available. It's going to be available for quite a while. So it's available on the Mondo Macabro website. Always for a good price as well. Uh, and uh, 
hopefully uh, you can uh, get it uh, without uh, custom so obviously uh, adding <laughs> too much on it yeah. but it's a region free release that's why I'm saying that uh, if you're in the UK then, then do order it because uh, it's not a region A locked uh, release so me and Paul uh, did uh, the audio commentary for the release and uh, so uh, so check that out if you want to watch a little bit of a mind bender of a movie then uh, check out woman chasing the butterfly of death it's a it's, it's a the, the quote on the front from i think uh, like grady hendrix uh, so sort of a staggering monument of weirdness or something like that but yep yep that's right <laughs> yeah that, that sums it up so uh, check it out but uh, for for all your podcast on fine network needs otherwise including the back catalog of what's korean cinema and that also obviously includes our uh, episodes on uh, Whispering Corridors, Memento Mori, and Wishing Stairs. That's all available on podcastonfire.com. And we will have other shows on Hong Kong cinema and Japanese cinema and sleazy cinema and so forth. We also do bonus episodes uh, every now and again. If you have any questions or feedback, podcastonfire at googlemail.com. Hit us up on social media by hitting the Facebook button on the website and join the discussion group. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram. Just uh, describe, rather subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, uh, stream us on Spotify and Stitcher or wherever you get podcasts. So I'm going to keep it short and uh, hand it over to you. At the time of recording, you did a little uh, little video thing for the world. Is that What was that and is that going to be preserved or was that only for the attendees of your uh, uh, sort of sermon, Korean cinema sermon? That was, that was open to the worldwide community anybody um everybody was welcome can you still watch it there afterwards or it was only for the persons who attended you will be able to in a little bit of time essentially the british korean society approached me to do a little talk on korean cinema they do a lot of of talks on korean culture but they they sort of stayed away from movies because they didn't actually realize a lot of them that there's so much social commentary within Korean cinema and someone pointed that out to them. So they came to me and said, well, could you expand on that a little bit? So I gave a, a 45 or well, 50 minute Zoom talk that was recorded. And over the next month, I would assume or so, um, it's going to be available on the British Korean Society's YouTube channel. So you'll be able to, you know, catch it and uh, hear me rambling on and on and on about movies the great thing from my point of view is looking back at the some of the movies i chose it really rekindled you know that old feeling you get when you remember what it was to first find these amazing movies so it had a good feeling to it and uh you know they thankfully they said my passion showed through so hopefully they were happy enough with it and you know at some point it'll it'll be available for anybody to to dip in and out of. Excellent. I'm glad you did it and um, put yourself out there. Um, I don't think I would have because uh, I'm uh, too private to go on uh, one of these uh, Zoom things. So um, that's simply not my thing. I, I, I make my sort of living with my mouth and not... Uh... <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, to- I totally agree with you, but with the pandemic, and we always have to mention this, but with the pandemic and, and in-person things having just gone to nothing, sure. I was actually really missing the chance to i you know i've given lots of talks about korean cinema and i actually really enjoy it and it was the choice of getting the chance to do one again and do one for as long as i wanted or or give up an opportunity that i thought was worth it so you know i i have a problem with images of myself but thankfully you know as it came up 
I had a PowerPoint. So when I shared my screen, everybody's faces were just little two inch squares in the corner. And uh, beforehand, I, I hold my hand up. I, I got my I've got one of those sort of tweakable, movable lamps. And I actually shone up behind me. So it's sort of you could see me, but it wasn't like a big bright light in my face showing all my hideous old age. You know, I've been a bit of preparation beforehand and and I got away with it, I think, without everybody going, ah, look at him. Rather you than me, because uh, you're better at that stuff than, than I am. So uh, that's your that's your comfort zone. And uh, we're glad you got that opportunity. That's obviously going to, as you said, turn up on their YouTube channel. But uh, if people peruse your website, they're going to probably find a linky linky to it once it becomes available. And what is that website, Paul? I will indeed. And and I really should have introduced myself and said hello when I first came on earlier on, which I didn't do. So I apologize, everybody. Um, I'm Paul. I run the Korean film and interview website, hangulcelluloid.com. You can find me at hangulcelluloid.com. I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangulcelluloid. My Twitter's at hangulcelluloid. Uh, but if you go to hangulcelluloid.com, you know, my Twitter feed's actually on the main page as part of it. Um, and the, the Facebook and other social media buttons are all there for you just click around once that talks up on their youtube channel there'll be a a news item in the recent news updates and you can just click on and i don't know if i'll be able to embed it on my site i'll probably actually just send people to the british korean society just out of respect i guess excellent we'll keep an eye out for that uh, let's uh, do a rundown of what's to come here we have two films and uh, two sections lined up and there will be timestamps in the show post so you can navigate around the episode as per usual We'll talk voice first with a little dip into the series general box office record uh, so far. Uh, obviously, we'll talk of the performance of this entry. There will be some notes on the debut uh, director at hand here. That is obviously a theme throughout the series. It's uh, All movies have been done by uh, a director or co-directors making their first feature film. And it's uh, still the case for voice and a blood pledge. Uh, and after we've done with those notes, uh, we'll review the film. We'll take a short break, and after that, the Blood Pledge section starts with some brief notes on the film's uh, director and his connectivity to Park Chan-wook. Uh, we'll talk to the producer a little bit, because as Paul has informed us of, there's always been that overarching theme as well, the same producer uh, putting together the new talent and the content at hand. And uh, then we'll talk to box office performance of a Blood Pledge and then review the film. So let's uh, get to it. Voice from 2005 and plot from Internet Movie Database. While training after hours in her high school, the aspiring singer Park Young Eon, played by Kim Okbin, is mysteriously killed and her body vanishes. Her ghost is invisible and trapped in the school, but her best friend Kang Sun Min, played by Seo Si Hei, who broadcasts at lunchtime in the school, is able to hear her voice. After the suicide of their music teacher, Sun Min, aided by her mate Cho Ah, played by Sha Ye Ryun, they discover another student, Hyo Jung, died in the same elevator some time ago before all of this. And meanwhile, uh, Young Yeon recalls details of her life, disclosing why she died. So it's not as um, clear-cut as you might think. So that's its mystery. We'll get to it shortly. We're at the fourth Whispering Corridors or Girl School, Ghost School horror entry. And they are still standalone. They are still unconnected. We've only producer Lee Chun Yeon being a constant presence and uh, that quite fresh talent are brought on board these films. And we're talking actors as well. Uh, a fair amount of these movies have 
they're, they're like the debut work of a distinct debut works of uh, the female uh, actors uh, uh, which is neat so to summarize really quickly paul uh, entry one through three in terms of box office to give listeners an idea of what impact impact they had so uh, as they might remember as we talked of whispering corridors from 1998 that was the hit that no one predicted but yep. as a refresher course, how did Memento Mori and Wishing Stairs do in terms of box office and attendance in Korea? Because the second had a hard time getting past censors. So it would tell it would tell the story about those two a little bit. Just briefly before that, you know, we've said it before, but Whispering Corridors um, came out in 1998 and it was a real surprise success. Um, people were yearning for something new in terms of and a, a look at horror and it was so socially aware within what it did um it really spoke to young people especially and it took 621,000 admissions you know that's 621,000 seats and it was the third most successful film of 1998 after letter and a promise and we've, we've said all that before M- memento mori came out a year later problem with 1999 is that it was a really huge year it's the year that cheery came out which broke all box office records you know having you know two and a half million admissions it just it beat titanic you know um we had attacked the gas station we had tell me something we had nowhere to hide we had happy end with jundo yun so it was up against a lot a lot of competition because it was out in 1999 it also wasn't received as well, it does have to be said. Um, and compared to Whisper and Corridor's 621,000 admissions, Memento Mori only had 150,000. And, and, and it came up against the censors quite distinctly, as listeners might remember. We, we got quite a reduced running time in the end versus what was sort of delivered or intended. Repeatedly, repeatedly problems with censors over a period of, of months. Um, so... You know, you can't help but get the feeling that if they'd been allowed to do what they'd wanted to do in the first place without the censors, it might have actually touched people better because I think that's what drew them in and to whisper in corridors and made it so successful. And and and, and without repeating the story, uh, what, what was the reason they had a trouble a trouble getting past uh, the censors because um, it wasn't violence. It wasn't violence. It's it, essentially that sexuality has always been a big difficulty in terms of censorship in Korea. Um, the censors traditionally always were okay about, you know, love and sex within a traditional family, within marriage, but stepping outside that to anything the moral majority, if I can use an English term, felt was not the norm would get people into huge trouble. I've got films, you know, like Lies, Yellow Hair Band. So, you know, homosexuality, lesbianism, et cetera, et cetera. Even sexual veracity outside marriage was just seen as really touchy. And they cut out a lot of, we don't know what they exactly they cut out of Memento Mori, but as you pointed out in the trailer, there is actually a, a, a scene in a, a bathroom. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so there's obviously been some stuff of, of that nature that they just weren't able to go with in 1999. I'll come back to the whole bathtub sort of thing later on when we come to talk about The Voice and we can see how things have, have mo- moved on so much in those six years. It was a little bit of a downturn, but it didn't mean the uh, the kiss of death for the series because it uh, it continued, obviously. Indeed. And, and when we get to Wishing Stairs, it's 
what it was also a really really big year you know we had memories of murder we had the classic with Sonia Jin we had a tale of two sisters and we had old boy Park Chan-wook's old boy so it was a really big year so why, why even bother trying putting something well out? Uh, you know yeah exactly <laughs> but um you know if you think old boy and memories of murder had sort of you know over a, a million admissions each wishing stars did okay it had 533,000 admissions you know, it wasn't up in the top 10, but, you know, it almost equaled what Whispering Corridors had done. It found it found its place, Robert, and completely buried underneath, uh, you know, your uh, your big guns. It did. And, it, you know, it gave the whole series that feeling of popularity, even if Memento Mori was seen as critically successful, but less so publicly, if you like. And that brings us to 2005's voice. And uh, we had a two-year gap with the prior entry being 2003's Wishing Stairs. But again, th- th- there was no sort of reduction of thinking, change up in thinking uh, from the producer. And I really like that, that uh, he seemed hellbent that, uh, oh, we're going to introduce new talent. And uh, that includes uh, both makers and performers. Uh, we're going to give new directors a chance to shine. So clearly uh, he had an eye on... What was happening, I don't know, on the short film scene or what was coming out of the academies and so forth. But uh, clearly a very um, noble thing to uh, to look at new talent and try and give new talent a chance. Uh, because it had sort of panned out uh, three movies in a row, at least at least critically and a little bit across the board, even if Memento Mori was a downturn in attendance. But uh, at hand here we have writer and director Choi Ik Hwan, who had uh, experience working in the, on the series before though having been an assistant director on Whispering Corridors, and um, he makes his uh, directorial debut here. He has since held two features on his own, um, Life is Cool and Mama, and was one of 11 directors on the film Money Show, so it's a bunch of, sh- bunch of shorts in one, clearly. Hopefully not like a five-hour <laughs> short short movie, considering no, it's no. 11 directors. I have a feeling it's a little micro, uh, little micro films across the board here, a few minutes here, a few minutes there. It is indeed. And, you know, in terms of what we've always said about Korean cinema, it hits the two-hour mark, so you don't need to worry you're not going to be sitting there for three days. Uh, so, uh, speaking of that, Choi Ikwan, has he made any critical and commercial impact across those films? Uh, and uh, also, in short, since the wiki highlights that it's the acting debut for the three leading actresses. Uh, so, after you talked about the, about the director, talk about if the actors uh, actresses have expanded their careers and thrived after starting out in horror. And I'm not saying that is shameful, of course. So but totally, we, totally. we start with the director, if you will. I mean, essentially, his, his two films, Life is Cool from 2008 and Mama from 2011, again, both critically quite well thought of. But they, in terms of box office, in terms of uh, reputation, they sort of came and went in, in the blink of an eye. What he is known for is since that he has uh, the the next couple of years, 2013 and 15, I think, he produced two films, one called Social Phobia and one called Alice in Earnest Land. We've done that. Yeah, exactly. Both of those have been deeply well thought of. Um, Alice in Earnest Land was directed by Anguk Jin. Um, Debut again, and it's the story of a woman who's got property problems. Um, She's got a... A deaf boyfriend who tries to commit suicide and she goes after the people who are trying to turf her out of her home in a hugely humorous and uh, violent manner. It's quite a remarkable little film. Choi Hik Wan um, 
is actually heralded as having pushed those films forward. So, you know, he's to be really thanked for that. Paying it forward after having been um, given that chance himself initially. Well, indeed, you know, and if you look at um, the producer of all these one, two, three, four, five, the girl school horrors, Lee Chun Yun, that's exactly what he did. He gave all these actors and all these directors, these new people, a real chance. And it's good to see one of them then helping others, even if their career as a director hasn't gone as humongous as they might have liked. You know, it's just, it's nice to see. It's a nice, it's a nice circular thing. Before we get to the actors, uh, I didn't mention this, but across the board, if you if you remember, like Whispering Corridors, Memento Mori, Wishing Stairs, all these debut actors, were they coming out of uh, exp- uh, like huge year-long experiences on TV or were they really, really new, uh, most of them? Almost always, when you look at them all, they'll have done a couple of TV shows, a few, you know, for a couple of years. Then they'll maybe have done a movie or the the horror thing is their first film and then they'll either go back to tv or stay in film or do both that's the, the vast majority because of it. They're, they're always age appropriate as well it's not like they're casting 28 and 29 year olds in these uh, roles as as school girls so no, exactly, they, they really exactly. look they really look new i mean they might be in the mid-20s uh, knowing korean women they can play students and pupils yeah, but but still, you know, it is kind of age appropriate that, they, they, you know, they they fit the part. It's not it's not like it looks out of place, really. So uh, the the trio, at least two of them uh, were new right at this uh, time. Yes. I mean, if we look at Kim Oak-bin, who, you know, depend where you look for her name, you, you'll also see her name written as Kim Oak-vin with a V. Either's, either's correct. It's just the, the hangle in the English thing. This this was her first film, um, and she, out of all of the main cast, apart from one actress who I'll mention in a minute, um, has gone on to be the the biggest, certainly in a sort of a cult sense. You know, you probably have seen her in The Villainess, which is a, a hugely successful action film. Yeah, she sort of plays a hit woman, etc. She, she, she was in um, Park Chanuk's Thirst, um, where she plays a feisty vampire. She was in uh, E.J. Young's film called Deceppo Naughty Girls, which was based on a really, really fam- famous anime or manma in terms of Korean cartoons, which supposedly E.J. Young was really embarrassed about. And in the, the DVD extras, he actually made them blur out his face and not, not mention his name, which is a bit pointless since his name's on the cover. Um, <laughs> but but it was critically seen as a good take on a, a silly story. So she's really... She's really moved herself forward and she's continuing to get bigger and bigger. And I think out of all these actresses, um, she, she's one of my favorites. I, I, I do I do read her quite highly. Um, if we look at COCA, um, who plays her best friend, Seon Min, she's done a lot more TV since, although she has from time to time popped in to do movies. She did Suicide Forecast starring alongside Ryu Sung Bum, who is Ryu Sung Wan, director Ryo Sung Wan's brother. Uh, she was in Rampant, which is a, a was a famous, well thought of period zombie movie. If we look at the weird girl of the story, a girl called Chua, um, she's played by Cha Ye Ryun. Um, she's been in a bloody area with Hansuk Kyu. Um, she did a film called Moi, Legend of a Portrait, which I'm going to mention a little bit 
later in a different context but bear it in mind it's a it's a horror film about a haunted picture set in vietnam and it was actually part filmed in vietnam but we'll i'll come back to that later she did sector seven which is a, a one of korea's first horror movies that was in 3d um but the big name is actress kim seo hyung um and she plays Hyun, who is a music teacher in the voice um she's a lot older than the rest of them and she's had a, a huge career. Um, she was in City of Violence, Barefoot Dream, Black House with Wang Jun Min, a little film called Desire to Kill. She was in Ryu Sung Wan's Berlin File. She was in The Villainess. And she is actually now going to be the lead actress in Whisper in Corridor 6, The Humming, which came out in earlier this year. If you're looking for, you know, continuity in completely unrelated films, here we've got the voice with her as an important if short-lived character and and now she's moving on to be the the lead in this thing and in, in whisper and corridor six the humming she again plays a teacher who returns to a school and starts to hear things and she thinks she's been drawn back there so it's good to see that little bit of continuity and an unrelated thing going on and eventually on Discovery, too, because we're done five, we're going to do six as well. So uh, that is coming up now that it uh, was released theatrically in Korea over the summer uh, after a delay due to the pandemic. So, uh, But it's the first one that kind of officially puts, uh, in English anyway, Whispering Corridors Part 6, the humming rather than a title like Voice or a Blood Pledge that doesn't seem like it belongs to anything. Uh, but it's really the first in English that I think... Uh, says that yeah what the hell let's let's just be open about uh, what it belongs to and get people in that way it does have to be said as well while we're just mentioning the humming briefly it's a again a first-time director called Li Ming Young and Li Ming Young actually produced along with Yi Chun Yun actually produced the voice so she's moved from producing that film to now directing the humming um which is again a, another set of bit of continuity and part of that was because each young young had been getting ill and stepped away from producing etc etc um sadly he died in may this year so it was 69 years old i think but um but there's still that connection there so it, it's good to see it there too yeah, it's very noble to uh continue to to, to let the series have a theme and uh, and and a voice, uh, no pun intended. So that's very cool to hear, and uh, and a, a blessing for putting uh, putting new talent uh, on the map and uh, fl- flying the flag of uh, taking a chance uh, and making a long-lasting Korean cinema in the process. So um, so so rest in peace. But uh, the celluloid lives on. So and uh, that includes uh, producing this one, voice. And uh, as for short opinions, uh, to me this isn't a fourth. This is a new one. And in, the important thing is, we were say we're saying that it does not feel like a recycle. Uh, so far, it felt like to me new stories every time, despite hitting some of the same content. Uh, and it's quite a confident debut work. It's it's assured. The style is reserved. It's cranked when the story suits, um, when the story sort of warns noise. And it's an affecting story too. I think it's a really great fit for the series, and uh, I, I rank it as. Uh, uh, you know, at least for now, I, I think it's nearly up to the quality of Memento Mori in terms of the emotional impact it had on me, because I, I think that's something I took away 
more rather than being creeped out by it. But I was affected by it. I thought, thought it was a really high quality entry uh, voice. So I really, really enjoyed it. And uh, it was haunting in that emotional way. Uh, without spoiling it, they they do a very clever and uh, haunting uh, way to structure their end credits. Where you just sort of sit there and uh, your your, mm-hmm. ma- your mouth is open. That oh boy, that is uh, that's not scary. That's sad. And I like that these horror movies uh, can trigger that. So very pleased, but uh, we're not going to spoil that, obviously. Uh, so let me throw it to you for your uh, quick opinion of this rewatch. I totally agree with you on that. The very ending of the film, I actually on a rewatch. I hadn't seen the film for a fair while, and. Uh, I actually got a shiver up my spine. It wasn't a shiver of, you know, horror. It was a shiver of kind of touchingness, um, poignancy. Um, so it really worked for me. I, I love voice. Um, when I first saw it, um, I always said I liked Wishing Stairs, you know, out of the, the main three, et cetera, et cetera. And I enjoyed the voice. And I was never, I, I never really included it. I always thought, you know, no, the, the three, they're just lumping these things on. They're not. On a rewatch, I was, I was, I was deeply taken by this film. I love the way the story unfolds and how, how really layered it is. And in some instances and in films, you could say that you're being lied to by omission and you're only getting little bits of stories to be then told more, which you, you might not have been able to work out before. But I love the way we learn as the main character learns what her story was. And I, I, I love the way that even in the exposition, a lot of the times she's talking to herself. You have to see it to understand what I mean by that. But I think that really works. And there are cliche techniques, but I think they're held together well. I think it's very atmospheric. The, the red lighting throughout. I mean, it really starts that way. It's almost like it's gleeful about its uh, cliches because the credits are red and there's visual design that's red because uh, it seems totally. like the school's emergency power supply. The, 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 the lights are red uh, yeah. when the lights are off. So that's the way everything's lit at the beginning. So it's hardly subtle, but uh, within that, playfulness there's a very very elegant style in the fragments that we see here and uh, it hints at but it's not way too open about it hints it's hints about a ghost singing along to uh, the alive character that Mm. uh, is uh, there after hours as we said it's not like it goes for like i heard someone singing what it it wasn't me it wasn't you it was the voice like it's not uh, you know tacky horror like this uh, a lot more subtle a lot more subtle and it, it it feels it feels almost natural you know what they're doing you know where they're taking you but um i think for a debut director he handles it all incredibly well who's who's also the writer by the way i'm not sure we mentioned that but choi Juan is the writer of the film as well so it's uh it's controlled from uh, the ground up. Uh, to me, it never felt like this is another echo of the female friendship and the school and blah, 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 blah. And I'm glad that it isn't uh, because yeah. female friendship would happen in a school anyway. We talked of the, the sort of social aspects of uh, a girl's school and how that can transition into romantic aspects but these movies tried to navigate that as best they could without getting getting into hot water not that they should obviously uh, memento mori uh, it's uh, it's not the down for uh, 
for sensationalism or anything that uh, they trigger a uh, a uh, same-sex uh, romantic angle or anything. But it's um, they really navigate the tropey stuff, like a quiet atmosphere and someone walking in the hall that's not supposed to be there. It, it's a very elegant style that aids... Uh, it's this very well. It's so assured for for like a debut director, and then that sort of floating, floating paper that we see, and then dead. You know, it's a, a piece of sheet music killing a character. I hate saying that sentence because people are gonna groan like a sh- piece of sheet music kills a character. But no, this movie argues that this sort of slow, calm, mysterious atmosphere because that is a mystery. It doesn't veer off into cheesy. And uh, I, I, I thought that was, I didn't know why, because it's not the whole story. But uh, the, this opening really seemed to me like, yeah, I think uh, I think uh, Choi here is, um, he's got a handle on this. So let's, um, let's evolve this. Let's uh, explain eventually what's going on. And uh, I don't know how you sort of see movies, but sometimes you just feel that, yeah, this person has control of uh, his or her Very storytelling. Much so. I mean, certainly, you know, I love, I love the fact that yes, you mentioned the the sheep music. Um, I love the the fact that in hindsight, the fact that a sheep piece of sheep music has been used is part of a pivotal story that goes through that w- that we learn later on. Even aside from our main character, our main dead character having tried to be, you know, a singer in school choir and etc. It's it's a lot deeper than that. But I love the fact that those little references are there for you to grab and think back on. There's a contrast, by the way, of uh, the still atmosphere versus select moments of heavily accentuated visual style. If we look at the credits, it's the sort of hyper credits. Uh, uh, credits. It's the it's the shaking camera. It's the brightness going up and down. It's the quick cutting versus the stillness. But the way uh, Choi uses uh, that is for select moments when uh, when you're supposed to crank it a little bit, but it never felt like. And and this is leading a little bit into blood pledge. It never felt like cheap startles here. He picked his moments where he doesn't go boo, but he sort of cranks things a little bit. He raises volume rather than bah! And uh, that is way better because he then transitions into a lot more dreamier and atmospheric and uh, still atmosphere. I thought he earned those little injections of uh, of uh, more crass style, if you will. I mean, I, I totally agree. And on a rewatch a couple of nights ago, you know, if you look at you look at Korean horror, you can almost guarantee that at the exact one hour mark, something's going to happen. It's what they often, often do. And when we first find or when the, the other characters first find Youngin's body in this, it's just on the one hour mark. And at that point, from the whole way up there, I've been thinking this is very measured. It's taking its time. And suddenly we were at an hour. So there's a, a weird beauty that it doesn't feel like it's rushing. It doesn't feel like it's, you know, galloping along, but it actually does move fairly quickly. A, a nice measured feel that also moves at a pace without re- you realizing that it does. I think that's that's quite something to be to be proud of, really. And one thing it changes up as well is that, you know, we get the emergence of, of uh, a ghost early but not for uh, immediate vengeful and revenge purposes because as uh, she uh, died here young uh, young uh, uh, she's she's in the school she's isolated she doesn't know what's going on and then she's run through because she's a ghost people doesn't see her so uh, students run through her 
her spirit uh, body and uh, no wonder she feels um, isolated and that that uh, that perspective of uh, someone being very alone I don't think has been explored as much in this uh, series uh, that that shock yeah. of not existing anymore uh, not this early anyway because it really uh, out of the gates we, uh, we we get that perspective rather than an hour in like the ending of whispering corridors has aspects of that when uh, when it comes to a conclusion of it all you know it's uh but but it's been vengeful up until that point but not here from the beginning you know i I think it's quite beautiful that he he chooses to do these things so quietly that you cut well certainly i came to the realization about the whole you know that what he's saying about the, the school system of of how Really, you can be in a group of people and you can be completely invisible. And, and that's that's a theme that's been going through all of these things, along with the sort of, you know, betrayal of, of love between girls, et cetera, et cetera. But I love the fact that it oozes out of this film that she, you know, she could just be a girl in school and be feeling totally alone, even though that's not the case. You know, I think he handles it deeply well. There is, while remember to say it, there are a lot of similarities from my point of view between voice and a film that came out um, in 2004 called Dead Friend, which was released internationally under the title Ghost. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, so he said Google. No, but you know, the, the strange thing is the actual original Korean title of it is Ghost, but it's become known as Dead Friend, even though when you look at the hangle on the, the, the DVD, it, it's just Ghost. But it's got a lot of the similar things of the story appearing to be one thing and then uh, you learning as the main character learns that maybe their story isn't what they thought it was. It's about a young girl, who school girl, funnily enough, um, who wakes up after an accident and she's lost her mind. She's she's you know got amnesia and she tries to reconnect with her friends and as she reconnects with her friends they start to die and she tries to figure out what her story was and what their story was and she gradually comes to understand that maybe her life is not quite what she would have expected it to be it wasn't as big as voice i really read it i love it but having rewatched voice voice is better i couldn't get away from the the thought that some of these things were coming again and again and again uh, as a you know almost an homage but voice does it better um it does have to be said that dead friend was directed by a, a, a director called um kim tae young or lee tae young excuse me that's not the guy that did volcano high it's different his name's got an extra g on the end um but he did he also did that movie i mentioned earlier my uh, legend of a portrait um about the the haunted portrait which stars one of our main actresses so there's that connectivity again i wanted to mention also that i was really impressed by the visual effects here uh, how he uh, emphasizes how she can't leave the school uh, when, when she tries to run run out of the the um, the, the entrance uh, the access to the school her her, her boundaries are depicted with uh, with uh, like uh, swipes of environments to the next, like uh, he uh, he reverses the environments and she she's in another place in the building she can't leave. Very clever, like li- literally swipes of uh, environments uh, that changes from one to another, which is obviously done on a green screen, but very accomplished. And uh, you get the idea 
that uh, obviously that that would sort of be a, a rule, I suppose, a ghostly rule that uh, she died here, she can't leave here. Um, and 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 it gets, as you said, with the pace uh, pace being good to its angle uh, about at least two people seemingly being aware of uh, voices and presences, uh, including best friend can still hear her best friend. So it's that swift mi- mystery moving uh, forward. And uh, I, I was sort of there for the early melodrama between the two. It's an extraordinary otherworldly connection where, where she can prove that it's her, their deep bond, by uh, referencing what uh, was their thing in life. And uh, it uh, and, and it's lonely. And it would be lonely without you. So they, he pushes those buttons well, but uh, doesn't crank the over uh, the melodrama rather uh, that uh, much. Uh, uh, because uh, he, he continues to sort of have a little mission statement. This mystery needs to be um, uh, clear. The horror audiovisual execution needs to be confident and secure. And But, but we, we, we can't uh, drown it in either. You know, we, we can't drown it in t- tons of exposition because th- that might be too overwhelming for, for viewers. So he really finds a neat balance between involving and making us understand the mystery through clarity but not holding our hand totally throughout uh, the whole thing because there, there are little hints here that um, doesn't explain fully to us we, we know that uh, Jung Eon died from uh, a throat wound and then we see, her, see a throat wound in the music teacher and that, that gets explained but not in this exposition dump kind of way in, and the explanation is um, is uh, part of the sort of heartbreak of the film uh, and they, it's early in the film but uh, I might keep that uh, off the table uh, despite it there. so the point is uh, there's a, uh, a rhythm here to the storytelling and the reveal and the exposition that I feel is very right it doesn't go overboard and uh, dumps it all on us and adds way too many characters as a twist or anything. Uh, it really keeps it close-knit and understandable. And that's one of the reasons why I think this succeeds uh, quite a bit. And it also involves up until the end. He isn't done by 45 minutes or anything. Uh, there's a nice sense of, uh, as you said, by the hour mark. You you get that, uh, that sol- uh, riddle solved. Where's the body? And yeah. uh, that is uh, an, also an understandable and clear, clearly made uh, aspect of the mystery. So... I know debut directors are generally very good in Korea, but it's still commendable that it's so well structured from writing to to uh, to directing. You know, well, the, I mean, the one the one other thing I would say, like to touch on um, the whole thing of these girl school horror movies or ghost school horror, whatever whatever you want to call it, is all about the whole social aspect and i always do this but you know we know memento mori had trouble because it tried to portray sexuality the others did it less so but you could see they were still trying to say there is a perhaps a lesbian relationship between these two and it's very socially aware and there's misogynism seen in the 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 male teaching characters and and the voice does that beautifully it it can be more overt because we're now you know, 2005, that's, we've, we've moved quite a bit forward in terms of censorship and in terms of new Korean cinema. Um, so there is one scene of two characters. It's very brief, but one making advances in a in a shower setting um, on an, and another and uh, not things not going the way they want. So it's there, but it's very quick. And there's a there's a real feeling of of love and betrayal in the way he does it, and I think that works 
as strongly as any of the other outings in this sort of series have done. If, if it would have been a dodgier series, it would have come off as that very thing, dodgy. Oh yeah, they're just hitting the lesbianism again. But it isn't that. Um, maybe they're thinking like, well, let's challenge ourselves by including that. The Memento Mori did it. We had our troubles, but let's not back down necessarily. Let's um, stay true to something that isn't a big deal in actuality. Totally. And I think being 2005, I still think they were quite brave to do it. But the fact that it was allowed and it it, it adds to the overall story and it, it gives a real connection or not between characters it also has to be said the misogynism of the the teachers is also mentioned but again it's so fleeting it's okay it's not pushed there's just one scene just before her body's found where two male teachers one who always carries a key in that you know for randomly hitting the schoolgirls because he's you know alpha male i guess um they're they're moving towards the elevator and uh, they've all been talking about the the belief that the dead teacher, the dead music teacher, was a lesbian. And he actually says, oh, I knew there was a reason she turned me down. And that that sort of inherent misogynism just screams out. But with that, it's gone. And you can just get on with the story. So I think it, it understates things by by being able to quickly just say them out loud. And I think that's one of its real strengths. But, but it's still very good at exposition if we switch to what the purpose of the Choa character is at one point obviously she has a place in the story but she is miss exposition at one point she because she's knowledgeable she knows that these things uh, might happen that she that ghosts can be heard she might have experience on that in that and she brings up this story point of uh, if the character of Jung Yeon's voice goes or if she's forgotten, her voice goes. And that's devastating for friendship, you know. And that's a parallel in the story to, uh, well, I might as well say to uh, the, the, the story of the music teachers about that she got uh, throat cancer and her real life uh, dreams of, uh, of of singing. That was crushed. She lost her voice in, in that regard. And, and I thought those... Um, those story aspects, the way they were delivered, were very intriguing, and uh, it uh, it obviously channels that affecting nature of uh, of lost friendship, and uh, it's very calmly, smartly delivered. But but we also sit up and and notice those brief glimpses that you talked about. We wonder what they're about. They're not elusive in a frustrating way. There is a quick cut to another scene of uh, closeness, as I believe. Uh, the character of Young uh, Young Yeon or the other girl that killed herself uh, prior to the story starting, as she leans on the teacher, and and yeah. they, 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 it's a very brief scene, but she she leans on the teacher and saying, "You remind me of my mother." That's it, and it's not a frustrating sort of like, boom boom. Are you curious now? Am I a good filmmaker now? No, it's very confident. Uh, it's very very compelling, and it's not uh, leading to an overstuffed story. It never really does. Uh, would we have had like three or four extra characters on top of this? That would have been overstuffing uh, and overcrowding. Uh, but uh, I, I think that balance is uh, very neat, you know. And and by the way, I, I was really surprised, by the way, that uh, there's a good stretch of 30 minutes at the beginning of the movie that details what happens during the first day. It, it's sort of a... Uh, it, it, it's a narrative that only takes place during two or three or even four days. Yeah, it was neat to forget about that, and there was then I was reminded of it like second day, 
and then eventually final day. Oh yeah, I, I like that structure, but it didn't sort of hover over the movie. That we're in totally first day, everything's happening during the first day, what's gonna happen during the second day? Boom, boom, second day. And I, I really like that professionalism, uh, that uh, structure and uh, through and through an understanding of the mystery as the layers get revealed. It was never, yeah. it never went too quick for me. It never became, we never ended up in an ending stretch. We're like, oh shit, we've only revealed 30%. Let's reveal all the seven, the rest of the 70% in one go. Boom, let's have it all. No, there's, it, we don't have that. And that was very good for me because I'm, I'm old and not very attentive. So uh, things need to be calm sometimes. And it was here. <laughs> yeah, very much so. And you know, I, I'm, I'm, I was hugely impressed by the fact that even though there are certain scenes that are truncated and we'll find out why later, um, it never felt that way. So I was never left thinking, oh, you've left, you've left something, you've left something out here, something going on. I was completely comfortable having seen what he'd let me see. So when I actually found out what the reality was, it came as a genuine surprise. And that's, that's true in terms of, it has a rewatch, never mind a, a, a first watch. So, you know, hugely confident work and, and succeeds humongously. He seems like a director, I don't know what the style is in the other movies, but there, there seems to be a lot of static shooting at points of characters, of objects, which translates to compelling focus, but is one of those things tec- technically that might not feel very alive in filming, but it comes together when you put it together. Totally, totally. And uh, that's very good also. The uh, debut director isn't flashy, but picks his spots where he's supposed to. There's a, there's a few things where uh, I was uh, I was come back to this. It's not a good reference, but it, it, there's a few select points where this looks like a Tony Scott movie. But for good reason. There, there There's a few things where this is earned and where uh, uh, visual effects and special effects have a place. But all of that is very well uh, conveyed like uh, whether you're talking the flashbacks or those uh, effects that i that i talked to you about like uh, offhand i i can't say if i think korea was deadly diring in the visual effects computer effects department or not i think it, uh, it comes and goes you know uh, some movies do it good from 2005 some movies do it uh, less well and that might be the case in 2021 but if you think back paul to how it depicts those uh the, the swiping of the environments but also the environments where she can walk into there's like a specific place in school where she can walk into her, walk into her memories and those are obviously green screenshots that uh, the actors are walking towards Th- that looks seamless to me it really did and um, totally totally and and compared to you know a lot of films from that era you know korea had a hard time with special effects for a long time and i mean even even up to 2011-12 if you look at a film like The Tower, uh, starring Sonia Jin, the special effects of CGI is clearly CGI, and it's a little lackluster. You know, if you compare, this is much simpler, but it's much more natural. And I think the special, I was really impressed with the special effects and how successful they were, especially for this time frame. And, and that needs to be conceptualized very well. I, I was a minor of the eye, the Hong Kong movie, the eye, that also uh, uses... You know, a clever set of special effects there, there, there's a scene in the eye where the blind character who can't, can't see at that point she's had her operation where the room sort of changes in the same frequency as the clock on the wall does so tick tack tick 
Tack, and the room changes from one room to another. It's a swiping type of effect, but it's very immersive and well done. And it's story-driven. It's story-connected rather than look at what our fancy X amount of hertz and RAM computers could do. And, and, and that is an old movie, too. It's not like that. That was uh, last year. There's a fairly complex dump of twisty-turny information for the last fourth, but still not terribly complex and it's a confident chunk of complexity that, that we're willing to take on. We understand it. It uh, we he do, he doesn't like pull the rug out from underneath us uh, with a twist or anything. Yeah, it evokes those things. We obviously won't spoil them of, of emotions. It's a bit scary, and we start to put down get get the pieces of the puzzle put down before us. We understand the glimpses from before in the movie what those mean, and it's not a cheap. Uh, wrap up or, or anything um, it's uh, it, it's haunting emotionally and on a technical level I wanted to single out there's evocative use of sound design too uh, where in a scene where uh, Choi Kwan taps into the theme of losing your voice at one point she she stops hearing voices she only hears the taps of the uh, knives and forks in the lunchroom it's not hard to do I'm sure you, you just shoot the film <laughs> silent and then you do death foley only but I thought that was a very effective way of uh, making us understand that uh, things are degrading, uh, things are uh, missing uh, from the sort of oral soundscape. And uh, and there, there's some effective experimental cinematography for the end as well. So, sort of those moments where he chooses uh, his shaking shots, his out-of-focus shots to emphasize uh, a little bit more horror and... Uh, those stuttering visuals that he chooses to do are very effective as well. It, it's uh, it, it's it's those moments that he chooses selectively that that, that I think uh, is like the key to both the horror and the emotional component, rather than him toying with those f- for ninety percent of the movie. You know, totally on the on a similar thing to the lunchroom and her only being able to hear the cutlery or whatever. As the film progresses and she fears that she's disappearing, that she's losing her voice and her voice is cracking up and stuff. And, you know, she's scared that she's going to be forgotten. Um, She repeatedly looks up at a single light bulb that seems to be flickering on and off. And it's almost like you get a look inside her head as she looks at it and thinks, just like that light bulb, I'm. I'm disappearing, I'm on my way. And I think that's so, so poignant. Those moments are just gorgeous. One thing I forgot to ask, and and this might be us cutting for a few minutes for Paul to look up things. I forgot to ask uh, what the attendance uh, was for voice in uh, 2005. Or did you look that up uh, despite? I did indeed look that up. Um, I've got all the figures right here somewhere. So uh, that, that will be my final note done. And that's my question. How did voice do? If you look at Voice 2005, not the biggest year ever. Um, we had a few really big films. Welcome to Don McCall was the, the year's highest. Um, it had six and a half million admissions. We, we started out with like 600,000. Wow, that's un- unobtainable. Six million. <laughs> Sympathy for Lady Vengeance, three million. Cry and Fist, one and a half million. April Snow, 750,000. When I say this, it sounds like The Voice didn't do very well, but it didn't do too badly. It had 397,000 admissions, and over the year in total, it was 44th 
you know, out of the top 50 successful films. So, you know, there were a fair few big films. It did okay. Welcome to Don McCall. I'd stripped everything by, by millions. So that's almost giving you those figures is, is a bit off-putting. But yeah, 44th in the in the box office takings and it took nearly 400,000 um I'm screened on 167 screens which is pretty fair pretty fair I don't know literally and I'm sure you don't know the full extent of uh, producer Lee's history but having done a string of not runaway hits one wonders if it was a constant sort of stressful process to get these movies greenlit or not um Obviously, it worked out in the end, but uh, it doesn't sound like investors were sort of screaming for him to, like, take our money. You've got to remember, I mean, out of, you know, you look at your average person, just the average person who's watched the film, they'll know the lead actors, they'll probably know some of the directors of films, you know, they probably won't have a clue who the producer is. In terms of Korean cinema, Lee Chun-young, the producer of this whole series was incredibly well respected. He was a big name. He produced massive classic cult films that that became really important to Korean cinema in general. Um, Art Museum by the Zoo with Shim Yuna, who was just you know she was the most famous actress through New Korean cinema until she just got married and retired. Damn it. You know, he produced Unbowed, which starred Anson Key, who you all know from Revivre, The Housemaid, etc., etc. More recently, he in 2013, he produced a, a big, famous horror called The Terror Alive with Ha Jung-woo. And in 2014, a, a really gentle, critically acclaimed road movie, I guess, in a way, called Gyeongju. He was also a big mover in the whole screen quota movement to make sure that Korean cinema got a fair deal at the box office in competition with Hollywood and wasn't just left out. Um, and we all know Chae sik um, was a big talker on that as well. So, you know, he's, he was a name. He was influential, you know, even as far back as 98, 99, he was known if he'd gone and said, I think this is worth our time. I think this is worth the, you know, the, the cinema company's interest. Um, I honestly think they'd be hard pressed to not listen to it. The, the gap between this and Blood Pledge was uh, greater, but uh, otherwise these movies were produced sort of continually. And as we hinted at, this was not his uh, only gig and only focus to do his little horror series or anything. So, yeah, totally, so, totally. So, so uh, and and I think it's wise obviously to space out uh, things as well and not oversaturate a um, a market, even if it didn't have a sort of tale of two sisters breakthrough necessarily. But um, totally, totally. Still, uh, okay, cool. Uh, I, I've uh, I, I don't uh, want to say anything else other than I highly recommend it. It's uh, near the top um, in terms of my. Favorite uh, entry in the series on an emotional level, rather than uh, rather than being creeped out uh, type of level. So I'm gonna leave it at that. I recommend it. So if you have any other notes, uh, do do share them. Just I, I highly recommend um, voice. It's equally worthy of inclusion in the series as any of the other films. Um, I think it's quite a stunning debut from a director, and you know. Go, go watch it. It's still available sometimes, uh, some places, you know, it's, it's slightly expensive, but um, it is out there still. So 
It is indeed. Uh, and uh, in the UK, uh, Tartan gathered the, these uh, first four entries, and that would include voice in a box set dubbed Ghost School Quartet, which is available for £20 still. Uh, that's how you sort of look it up more easily under that name. Uh, I couldn't find a single disc option for voice, uh, which is the case for the first three. You can find single di- disc uh, uh, options. Uh, it doesn't mean it isn't out there, but Amazon searches for voice only a UK DVD uh, uh, of it on its own. That gave me nothing. Uh, there's a US DVD set as well from Tartan, uh, but that's only for the first three uh, dubbed Ghost School Trilogy. Uh, and the standalone DVD of Voice in America is quite uh, expen- expensive. It, it's, the, it's the DVD with the ludicrous cover of uh, something crawling out of a girl's mouth, you know, uh, hands like trying to get out of someone's mouth. Has nada to do with this movie it's just a yeah. random sort of horror image from elsewhere and it says like voice unrated suggesting that you got a bloodbath asian bloodbath on your hand with asian girls like it's such a stupid stupid cover and as i said to paul in private uh, speaking of no i i would sort that cover um in my personal archive under nope exactly couldn't put it better myself i hate that cover always hated it so it's, I mean, I mean you, you need to sell, but still, when you make it cheap, it just stands out in a bad way. It makes you come off like a dope, really. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, if you compare that terrible cover with the original poster or DVD cover for The Voice, which has just got Kimmel Finn full face on it with tears of blood. Uh, like a neck slice. I mean, that, that, that's visceral. You know, you know uh, that cover I'm thinking of, it's very visceral. That would have been that would would do just fine because it uh, echoes, quote unquote, bloodbath as well. Well, totally, and I think it it also echoes the poignancy, the fact that she's okay, she's crying blood, but she's crying. I think that's it fits it fits the film quite well. Plus, she's incredibly cute, so <laughs> it's it's much easier to look at. Uh, the Korean import of voice is available as well, um, and, and for those who doesn't need subtitles, that contained the most video extra, extras and multiple audio commentaries and such, but uh, uh, that wasn't ported to the Tartan uh, box set, uh, because uh, I, the, the scan of the girls' school quartet box suggested that uh, there were no extras on the voice DVD, so in that case, Tartan didn't port um, extras and put subtitles on them. They, they did a fair amount of time. But for other movies, you know, yeah. uh, so uh, but uh, those original Korean DVDs, they're available, but they were quite expensive to buy with shipping um, to me anyway. So uh, yeah, you totally. have to take that in, uh, in account, but it, it, it's out there and you can get it. But um, I would recommend trying to find the uh, UK box set because uh, four movies for 20 pounds and a little bit of shipping on top of that. I think that's a good deal. Uh, okay, okay. We're gonna we're gonna take a music break, and then we're gonna take a look at the fifth entry in the Girl School Ghost School Horror uh, series. Four years past, and uh, then we got a blood pledge from 2009. So sit tight, and we'll be right back.
And welcome back in the second uh, review of uh, this episode. We haven't done one of those dual episodes, um, dual movies in one episode uh, for a while, but uh, we thought uh, we'd uh, round off the coverage uh, for now. We're going to get to Whispering Corridor 6 eventually. But uh, we finish off uh, for now with A Blood Pledge from 2009, the fifth entry in the Whispering Corridors series, if you will. And plot from Internet Movie Database, four friends make an oath sworn in blood to commit suicide one night, but the next morning... Only one is found lying dead on the school grounds. Rampant speculation about the nature of the incident raises among the student body, but the three surviving friends are tight-lipped about any of the details. However, when the victim's sister begins, uh, begins searching for answers, the plot as well as the survivors begin to unravel. So after a four-year absence, the Whispering Chorus came back with 2009's A Blood Pledge. And I noticed this time there's a five on the Korean poster. There might have been number uh, 84 on the prior one, but I noticed it this time around. So I know you might be the one to, to answer this. So does that mean when looking back on one through four that the, the various Korean titles have been similar uh, using numbers or not? Or, or have they been different or are they just overly clarifying what this film belongs to by putting a five in there and selling it as a girl's school horror? You know, uh, so, uh, we, you know, would the five be a hint for local audiences uh, or would a, would a Korean title give a hint of what it belongs to? Or what has been the deal with the Korean titles uh, before? Well, if you look at the first three, though they were always meant to be a series once they were made, they were just known as their titles, you know, Whispering Corridors, Memento Mori, Wishing Stairs. When Voice came out, because there'd been a period of a few years, even though on the, the DVD covers and the, you know, even the movie posters, it just said Voice or Ghost Voices, as the actual translation is. When you actually look at the movie, as the title comes up before Voice comes up, it actually says... It comes up first, Whispering Corridors, and then comes up four, and then comes up voice. It, on the actual credits, it did say Whispering Corridors four. In terms of a blood pledge, they took it one stage further, and everywhere it was mentioned, it was Whispering Corridors five. That's your answer. First three didn't. Voice did on the actual film, but not on the, the marketing stuff. And a blood pledge had Whispering Corridors five all over the place. Yeah, you wonder. I mean, maybe it's due to the fact that they were away for a few years, that the first three were strong on their own and could conjure up um, audience attendance on their own. Uh, some people, maybe a lot of people, knowing that, oh yeah, they're connected, whether spoon-fed it or not. Um, but yeah, I, I was kind of surprised. And as we mentioned, Whispering Corridors, uh, the sixth one is literally Whispering Corridors 6, the humming, even in English. Yeah. So uh, they're going with that for the international release. At least it looks like that. I mean, it's not out on streaming or DVD or Blu-ray yet, but it seems like the poster materials I've seen in English have kept that full title. So it's the most clear one out of the uh, six movies, if you will. Uh, Whether that is a good thing, I don't know. I haven't seen the humming yet, but uh, we'll get to it. Uh, So A Blood Pledge was uh, helmed by debut director Lee jong Yong who had a uh, 2007 short on the resume, but resume, but uh, prior had been in Grand, great company during the Korean new wave of the early 2000s. First as an assistant director of uh, On, Park Chan-wook's uh, joint security area, 
and he uh, also had a bit part in it as an actor probably because he was around uh, yeah. and then he co-wrote the screenplay for Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance uh, along with uh, Park Chan-wook and two other uh, writers uh, and that screenplay was eventually declared a winner at the 2002 Korean Association of Film Critics Awards um, definitely the the best of the Vengeance trilogy full stop it's a masterpiece I very much agree I very much agree there's been no movies since A Blood Pledge from uh, director Lee so I'm not sure we can say that the fact there was box office by the back end was disappointing and that put a halt to the directing career of uh, Lee Jong Yong but uh, you know how, how did A Blood Pledge do amidst its uh, competitors uh, that year I can't tell whether we're going to agree about this but um I have a funny feeling we might. Um, considering my overall feelings about a blood pledge, I looking up the figures was was deeply surprised because a blood pledge did really well. If we look back at the voice that we we spoke about earlier, it was forty fourth in the box office and it took three hundred thousand. A blood pledge was twenty sixth in the box office. It took six hundred and fifty thousand admissions. Um, it made three and a half million. US dollars if you like and you've got to remember that that was the year when Hyundai or you know Tidal Wave came out and and both broke more records Mother by Bong Joon-ho was out that year Castaway on the Moon came out that year and certainly their figures were a lot bigger I mean Hyundai had 11 million admissions Mother 3 million Castaway was 700,000 but you know a blood pledge for such a small horror film by a debut director it's six hundred and fifty thousand, nearly seven hundred thousand itself so 26 in the box office it did well for what it was and you've also got to remember that this was the year or the lead up to the years when korean horror was going to go into a deep demise for a number of years until i guess almost 2012-13 with things like killer tune um which revitalized it but you know Korean horror was not as popular as it, it had been at this stage of time. So to be 26th in the box office, you did all right. And I, I was very surprised, I have to say. Maybe putting numbers on the screen and on the posters really uh, was the uh, box office key of it all. Maybe. It may well have had something to do with it anyway. Because well, when you're up to five or six, you know, you're, you're going to go through some scrutiny, I suppose. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, people are going to think, like, is it time to pack it in or not? And that kind of thing, uh, when you're upfront with it, even though they had not been through one, through three, as you as you said. But uh, yeah, yeah, so it's uh, really a mystery in terms of what Lee Jong Yong is doing right now, because there's no producing or writing credit since this. No, he's, he's, he's another one of these guys in Korean cinema that, that just suddenly seems to stop. Um, and there's, there's no word left, right and center about what he's doing and whether he's still working in a different capacity. Um, there's just no word on him at all. You uh, talked a little bit about the, the, the producer of the series, uh, of the first five, Lee Chun, uh, Lee Chun Yon, and, and you mentioned a couple of the movies. I don't know if you have any other notes or anything else you want to say about the, the sort of uh, uh, the uh, paternal <laughs> the paternal figure of the series, uh, Lee Chun, uh, Chun uh, Yon, who, as you informed us of, has, has sadly passed away by this point, but uh, but yeah, well, t- yeah, totally. You know, I, I think this whole series is really his legacy. Doing the first three, they 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 fitted together, even though they are separate. Him stepping away, that's fair enough. I was glad he brought the voice back because 
it fits. It really fits with it. I think he was just at the point of a blood pledge, realizing that horror was going through a hard time because he, he, he was influential in, you know, as a producer in Korea. And, you know, aside from a blood pledge, he actually stepped away. And, you know, a lot of the other films he did were, were very poignant dramas rather than horror. So you get the feeling that he was, he was realizing that maybe the series was at least temporarily going to have to come to a close because it was going to, it was going to have a hard time. I wish he hadn't chosen a blood pledge, but that we'll talk about that more in a moment. Yeah, we, we should transition to that. And for, for me, uh, in terms of a blood pledge, the, the, the outcome of, of it all feels like um, the decision has to come right now that to, to take a serious break because th- this didn't work. So I'm glad I didn't push for a six like quickly afterwards and get something subpar. The, the, the fuel and inspiration to find a new angle to the girl school ghost horror with its character and emotional and scary content combined uh, that can be present uh, here it and uh, it was through largely through those first four films that's largely gone from five and i think it's time to stop and they did and uh, so there's no park channel quality transfer to director lee young jong uh, sadly i thought this was really subpar to be honest um and uh no uh, promise, uh, like, like no, no sign of a director that's gonna make that, that's gonna make further statements. Uh, they, they, no, this uh, you you can go back now, <laughs> no, or, or at least not to horror because uh, this didn't suit the director at all. So, I uh, want to share some, something in short, just for the sake of structure of uh, what did you uh, what you thought of a blood pledge uh, this time around. Blood pledge is by far. I I was going to say my least favorite, but it's not a favorite at all. It does not work. My biggest, biggest problem is that all of these stories are small human stories, but there doesn't feel like there's actually a story here for a large part of the film. And even more than that, scene after scene, it's a bad analogy, but it feels almost like, I guess, a, a, a cut price Mike Lee trying to do horror. There are constant scenes of three or four girls saying the same things, talking to each other, going, you know what happened, don't you? You did it. And the other one going, no, I don't, you bitch, blah, blah, blah. And then, oh, flashy, blood-covered girl who does nothing except, you know, appear full screen with a big noise in the background and then back to another three girls or the same three girls doing the same thing again there just seems to be this for an hour it felt like it's the short is the shortest film uh, out of all it's 88 minutes long and and, and funnily enough by the way ironically I, I thought like maybe this needed to be longer to be a little bit more fleshed out because this is not fleshed out at all but obviously you can't save this with an additional 10 minutes well exactly you know there's just it's a very amateur attempt at a story in a series that it's trying to hit similar notes and it doesn't know how to do it. I mean, if, you, if, if you're good, you can be basic and tropey, of course. There, there, there's no huge demand to, be, demand to be as impactful emotionally as the other ones, but you still need to be good. And this was far, far from good. Uh, and, and being short and fast-tracked is really where it trips itself up. Uh, I normally commend that the movie gets going and into the scenario and boom, 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 we know what's going on. Um, I'll, I'll get to clarity in a bit in my review, but regardless, uh, we, we, we get you know thrown into the suicide pact. 
we know that a story like that could echo weakness and fear that uh, not all are going to be brave enough to go through with it in the end. And uh, that's a template, that's a setup, and then you need to follow well because the others in the series were mostly ambitious uh, with themes, especially part two and four. They were emotionally effective, and this uh, makes another choice. And that choice, as you echoed, is to be in your face with the oral startles uh, kind of constantly. And that was neither scary, neither entertaining, and very, very bothersome and boring. You know, the the unexpected ghost in the toilet, images of blood, the friend lying in her friend's arms. Uh, Yes, they are startling images, but you get sort of constantly the same gray-faced blood running down uh, the girl's face, ghostly manifestation. And uh, it was tiring quite early. I didn't feel any confidence in this um, creeping or freaking us out. That was a concern. My main concern is that this story was going so fast, this development, that it felt... I I, I didn't feel a chance to sort of tap into and immerse myself in the friendship and how loss is dealt with. Because I I felt like an outsider looking in and I wanted to be a, a little bit more there with the girls and uh, i even thought the crucial dialogue about you know the token of two of the girls uh, friendship being an mp3 player and like never lose it you can't possibly hinge emotions on that tech unless you're really good <laughs> unless you're really really good voice hinged on the singing the, the the art of singing and a song but to hinge it on like their shared playlist there's no emotions to be had from that you know so so for the mp3 player that was like the red flag this is not working (laughs) were you able to sort of tap into that friendship that goes totally wrong and they're they're distorted and their uh, their friendship is disrupted or or, or did you feel like the lack of clarity hindered sort of your engagement in that uh, core friendship for me, there is no depth here. There is no engagement. Yeah, you know there's a friendship there, but he he doesn't doesn't look at it like it is a friendship, a deep friendship. As as it progressed, I on a rewatch, and I will say the first time I ever watched the Blood Pledge, I had to do it on two attempts because I got halfway through the very first time and said, I don't I don't want to see the rest of this, and I only forced myself in again just to say I'd done it in case, you know, there was something redeeming in the end, which there kind of isn't. On the rewatch, which was last night, I, I got to, you know, halfway through and I was very close to not stop, you know, not carrying on again. You know, things were happening and I physically remember speaking to myself and saying, I, I really, I just, I don't care. It's There's so, so little engagement. There's no engagement. It's kind of too basic, and therefore, there's no story really to engage in uh, here. Uh, Eighty-eight minutes of totally basic and generic, generic horror. I mean, I I do enjoy dialogue, dialogue like uh, you know the need for secrecy, like since the suicide pack will hurt them in school if people know they're, they they'd be stigmatized, and there, there's ample opportunity to expand on that commentary because they. I, I didn't judge the girls for thinking like I did I did poorly in my test so I want to kill myself because there might be something behind that. Uh, I I, di- I didn't want to feel that that's stupid because I don't know this part of Korean society and mindset that if you don't do well in school 
you know, suicidal thoughts can be triggered and be well, near, but there's no ex there's no interesting uh, sort of expansion on that thought. It's more like, I didn't do well in school. I want to kill myself. Cool. Me too. You know, it, it does have to be said, but, you know, you, you only need to read, have read headlines from Korea over the years that it's got the highest suicide rate, you know, one of the highest in the world. And a lot of school children, sadly, are under such pressure that they are pushed to suicide. They, they make films about it constantly, but there's a statement of it here that it's just, it's understood. And maybe, maybe it is, but that's not the way to deal with such a tender subject. When I was watching this and thinking, I don't care. I kept coming back to a tiny little film from, I think, 2017, 2018. I'm not sure which, called After My Death. And it was about a young girl who has a friend and the friend dies. And they invent the authorities and the teachers and whatever start to investigate this girl to see if she knew the friend was going to die and if she had something to do with it. Um, it's much more dramatic thriller horror than ghostly horror there's no ghosts in it it's it's all it's utter realism but from the first moment you deal with the story of this girl's supposed suicide you feel for all the characters and it it holds you like a vice i by the end of it i was actually in a crumpled heap on the floor it absolutely pulled me apart and it did it so gently and so caringly because the subject's important and that the blood pledge doesn't do that it, it says oh she didn't do well so she probably committed suicide that that's that's really the depth you get and you know there's there is no emotion there it's both too fast track but also important things are done in fragments that make it shallow and that includes one of the girls being uh, abused by a parent and we, we sort of see that it, it's a surprising, startling image. And we feel very like unconnected and disconnected from it because we don't, don't know the context of it. And even when they lay down the context, it still feels shallow. And, and that's also a very, very tender subject that, uh, that there's pressures from home and psychological and physical abuse at home. It's kind of infuriating that, that it's not um, done effectively when you go down those routes uh, so it frustrates more than it intrigues and plays into the emotional content of it uh, so it's really, really a big failure in that regard it, i might be wrong by the way is this the first time the series is set in because it's seemingly set in a so, sort of catholic girl school it, it's never really said as much as anything else in any of the other ones you just you know it's in school this is the this is the first one that that outwardly states but you know, it's par for the course. Depending on where you are in Korea, a lot, you know, a lot of the, the, all certainly all female schools are Catholic. So, yeah, because I never, I, I never remembered any interactions with uh, an authority figure that's um, that's a sister, right? Uh, that felt new, but not very well explored. I mean, there are some cl clever, seemingly promising visuals, like ghostly manifestations in the daytime. But it's emphasized hard rather than soft. Uh, and it's always the oral startle. And sometimes uh, they emphasize it in visuals. So it's sometimes scary soft is better than scary hard. Well, exactly. Jump jump scares are the, the bane of Hollywood. 
you know, and in, in case of a blood pledge, jump scares are, are, are it's, it, it's fodder, it's what it uses, and they're not effective. I'm sorry, not certainly not when they're handled this obviously. It looked promising enough that there's a little shot where they're, they're one of the characters is walking up um, uh, uh, a couple of stairs and she looks up, you know, there's probably six or seven stories up and she sees in between uh, sort of gaps, uh, she sees like the eyes of a ghost, uh, the manifestation of a ghost, and they do a push in on that. But also it's loud on the soundtrack, so it, it's sort of, yeah. uh, it never becomes uh, uh, effective. And, you know, at times the, the the beats are not terrible in terms of how girls push each other out of friendships and out of groups for no good reason, where when your friends follow a cooler crowd without you. But as promising as that is in the, in the execution department, it's more soap opera drama stuff about jealousy and broken friendship and shitty boys. And to me, it started to feel like, again, I'm not very attentive, but it still started to feel like it was hard keeping track of each girl's place in the story. Totally, totally. Pace has something to do with it because it seems like he's rushing through this movie. Granted, 88 minutes, so it needs to be over quick. But I I, I felt really left out uh, and wanted to sort of, let, let's reel it in, let's extend a few things and try and get clarity into this rather than just get the horror fix into this. And I... I grew frustrated of not knowing what was happening sometimes. I also grew so fucking tired of the boom, bloody manifestation of uh, uh, Yon Jo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, oh, oh here, here she is again. Like, <laughs> are you done with your thing? Like, oh, I know. And that's not the way you're supposed to feel about a horror film. You're supposed to be scared. And also, I'm sorry, uh, one of the most sort of defining moments of like, this is definitely not working now because I had a good old laugh at uh, how comically gory it gets at one point. Yeah. Uh, the scene in the car, which is uh, the little scanners moment of the film, that was so... It did not fit the context of this movie on its own. Certainly it does not belong in the Whispering Corridor series of someone going kablooey inside of a car. I'm a gore guy. I love gore, but this was just like, stop it now. Stop it now. That scene, the car scene, actually um, brought, brought out... A smile to my face as well because it it's the most ludicrous out of place thing you've ever seen in a film like this and it, it just comes from nowhere it seems to want to connect to how parents physically and mentally abuse their children and that's the um, ven- uh, vengeful aspect but it, it it doesn't work as a uh, either poignant satisfying moment like yes she, she got her comeuppance it's just like oh okay someone so someone's head blew up. Next thing. <laughs> and you're not supposed to be neutral about uh, these things. So the movie w- was not successful up until that point, but it certainly did not do any itself any favors. And I also have to say, Paul, I'm sure the actresses are talented, but the acting is borderline bad here. Oh, yeah. And especially when some of the, I, I you know, you hinted at it, the, the, these re- repetition of uh, scenes, but especially the the scenes where the various ghoul, ghoul, ghoul groupings, you can say that fits, but girl groupings are like confront uh, confrontational with each other and cocky and pushy and have these various confrontations and they're being sort of, they're, they're trying to be uh, the dominant person in that argument. I thought that was tedious and just felt it was borderline badly acted. And uh, Indeed, and it keeps happening. He keeps redoing it and redoing it and whatever. And it just gets to the point of, I've, I've seen this. 
you know, have I did I just hit rewind? Because I've seen this. I saw it five minutes ago. Deeply, deeply frustrating. And, and at times uh, there's some very theatrical acting as someone reacts to her clothes being soaked in blood. There's blood all over me. And uh, m- m- moving her hands uh, across her body, kind of like, nah, come on. This is not for film. This is for the stage. Um and, uh, and and yeah, like each strand of story strand uh, for each girl, the interconnection with the group relationship as a as a whole, I got frequently. I, I, I felt that was largely incoherent. Uh, and the mystery of the night in question, they come back to that because we don't obviously see the full extent of it at the beginning of the film. It's spoken of very clearly who was there, who was doing what, but it still felt elusive, Paul, and uh, kind of silly to the point where some of them become murderers towards each other and want to kill each other off. And uh, and again, if I missed the point of the pack to begin with, you know, because I, I'm not a, a, anticipating a full reveal at the beginning, I'm a, uh, anticipating a good reveal at the end. But w- when it goes out in, it goes in one ear and out the other. You're in, in incredible trouble and. There is also another way to summarize, like you did before, uh, this sort of packed drama, overpacked drama and intrigue. I don't give a shit. And I don't like feeling that. <laughs> Sad to say. It's not like I need for it to be intimate and tender and atmospheric, uh, even though it, that floored me before. I, I could do with a good little horror startle uh, or horror fix, but uh, I, I, I so didn't get that. I suppose a, a little technical note, one of the so, sort of only good scenes and haunting scenes, uh, there, there's an attempted kill involving hanging that is very well staged it's in a church because it's sort of done in real time. A character pulls up another one through the sort of makeshift noose and uh, she, the, the camera turns away from her as she tries to tie it up to something uh, uh, like a table to make sure she gets hung. She's obviously struggling off screen, uh, which was very haunting. Because it's a, it's almost like a real time little uh, scenario, but then again, I didn't know really who was doing what to who at that point. It was really that troublesome, and I've never encountered that in the other films. They were always uh, good enough in the character department, and uh, this is by a maker who does the friendship angle, but doesn't get through to us with its emotional component, and it it, it shouldn't be complicated and busy. It should be affecting, and he missed the. Uh, mark completely on that uh, to be honest you know i think it has to be said you know if you look at the other all the other editions of of the the series if you like all the characters all the main characters at least had personalities you know you were introduced to their personalities the girls in this are just all kind of bitchy and you, you they're almost interchangeable so as you go through, you just you're seeing essentially similar similar characters, all played by different people, and not played incredibly well. It just underwhelms from start to finish. Did you personally recognize um, two or three of the core group here as actresses who have gone on to other things? So um... the weirdest thing of all is that out of each of the films, I'd know some of them, even though they were early in their career, they, if they'd gone on to do other stuff, especially Kim Ben, let's be honest, is a, a star now, an absolute star. But looking at all the actresses in this on a rewatch just last night, I didn't recognize any of them. And I thought that's that's a bit telling. That's a bit of a, a worry. So I actually had to go and search out their names and each and every one of them 
did this film and then went to TV. And that's where they stayed. Your talk on the, you know, it feels like a TV drama. Well, that's what they were destined for. And you can't help but feel that someone like Kimmel Finn in The Voice became a star because she's a great actress and and is able to use her talent. These guys are, I'm not going to say less talented, that would be nasty, but they're suited to TV more than cinema. And TV, they can get away with a lot more of the the soap angle, I guess. So it just struck me as really weird that I didn't recognize any of them and each and every one has had a career in TV and not movies, which is new for the series, to be honest. So, so yeah, I, I don't have any other notes, so um, yeah, I'll, I'll give the floor to you if you want to share anything else. Out of all of the Whisper and Corridor series, this is the least effective. I hate not recommending a film because I always think a film should have some saving glory somewhere and I want people to watch Korean films, but don't waste your time on a blood pledge. Yeah, you can skip this one, really. Uh, even as a completionist in the Whispering Corridor series, it's it's definitely okay to skip this. Um, uh, that would be my personal angle to it all. Uh, you know, we, we went from four really essential films to something that reeks of, yeah, this sure feels like the fifth one. Totally. You know, I, I actually, you know, to be even more cutting, I think a blood pledge does the series a, a major disservice. And if it was down to me, it would not be included in it at all. You know, it took its chances to tap into the hugely commercial and popularized horror format with, with Wishing Stare. So you, you hinted at in our review of that, that it had Ringu-like imagery that certainly is not unique and original but it never really hurt that film necessarily but it was clearly you know the telltale signs of wanting to echo things that are are familiar but can draw in audiences to that thinking was there but it was still an immensely more effective and better film And, and 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 it was not littered with those moments this movie is just shock full of those moments beginning to end and it's uh it's uh dull after a while you know, I mean, I've I've said a lot, you know, on these podcasts and to random people on buses in general. I have a real problem with U.S. remakes of Korean films. They more often than not do not work um, because they're ham-fisted and they're they're studio controlled and they're all about jump scares. To me, a blood pledge felt like one of those. It felt like a bad remake of another film even though it's not. Yep, it's, it's one of those films. And it's okay to dislike things, uh, even. But uh, I'm like you, I, 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 I'm, I, I don't take great pleasure in these things. But uh, uh, this is one you can skip and focus on the first four. As a, as a final saving grace, just be thankful that if you do go and buy the box sets, you either get one, two, three, or I would suggest go get one, two, three, and four. At least there hasn't been a box set released with five included as well. Yeah, but to the best of my knowledge, this hasn't been indeed in a box set, but it was released in the UK, Korea, and America on its own. Yeah. Uh, but only listings I could find were for the UK and Korean DVDs, and both of them were quite expensive at this time, sadly, even the UK ones. So um, uh, with the Korean import, fine, with shipping and all of that, but even, uh, even on the Amazon marketplace. For the UK disc, uh, excluding shipping, it was still way too expensive for... Uh, I mean, I'm I'm willing to 
plop down like 20 30 pounds sometimes uh, but this was more expensive than that and uh, so i i had to rely on on your on your collection to even see this but uh, hey. well you know I mean, the only reason i had it was because you know over over the years when these things came out i i got them straight away just when when hmv and you know all the virgin and all the other dvd shops were still there you know my it was a weekly trek to just go down and do the old school look through and grab 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 so and i think even back then i think i I seem to remember a blood pledge was about 20 pounds yeah and that that would have been okay in my eyes uh, today um uh, even excluding shipping and and also the the added customs and so forth i'm willing to take that uh, loss as well but uh it was still too expensive. But heck, I'm even willing to because I, I got the first three individually uh, and not the box set. So I, I like those first four. So if, uh, I'm, I'm probably going to buy the box set to get the voice because I couldn't find the voice. Uh, so I had to rely on your collection as well. So I'm, I'm willing to double dip just to get the fourth one in there because uh, it's really uh, is close to my favorites. And, uh, yeah, totally, totally. Um, so, so yeah, we, uh, we, we like to support when we can. And uh, when we can't, we have to... Uh, uh, adopt the mindset that sharing is caring. So, um, well, indeed, it, it, it's hard to sort of map out. It seems in Korea anyway, unless a movie is sold to America or UK, what's going to happen post a cinematic release uh, in Korea, and especially during the pandemic? Pandemic. So, in terms of Whispering Corridor Six, the humming, no one really knows what the release cycle is going to be. Now, it's out of cinemas, presumably now we're end of august now it opened in june in korea but it seems to me uh following you talking to you that that means uh four months down the road there will be a uh, basic blu-ray edition in korea and it seems like that isn't the standardized answer now and i don't think this is going to be sold to the likes of cine asia or well go in America, Whispering Corridor 6 for humming. So it's release status on disc and digital and streaming. It's hard to tell nowadays, right? Um, I think it's just what the pandemic's done. It would have previously been the case. Uh, you know, if you look at the humming, when it was released at the end of June over the next month, it reached 34th in the in the box office takings. It did, it did okay. Um, critical reviews were largely not as favorable as they should be but under normal circumstances if there hadn't been a pandemic that would it would already have or be close to arriving on dvd or blu-ray we just don't know and and i think korea is even trying to figure what its what its plans are as we stand now i mean hopefully it can maybe enter a variety of regions in terms of Amazon Prime, whether you buy it or stream it there. Uh, uh, but but it, it's not, it's, you know, if we talk Welgo and Cinesia, things need to be, I think, a little bit bigger for them to sw- uh, swoop yeah, in totally. and uh, announce early acquisition. You know what I mean? And uh, I don't think that's going to happen with Whispering Corridor 6. I, I, t- I tend to agree with you. And if you look at things that have been popping up, certainly in the UK, and I guess in some terms of the US um, films that are appearing now you know they're they're from 2020 um, a film with Jean Yun called Beast Clawing at Straws which is it, it's 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 a cat and mouse game of mayhem it's 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 a phenomenal little film cat and mouse game of mayhem <laughs> put that on a poster 
exactly sums it up um, about a group of people chasing after a suitcase full of money. And it sounds obvious, but it's so intricate and so well layered and so droll and so brutal that it's a pleasure from start to finish. But it came out early in, in 2020 in Korea. It did well. It's only recently come out on DVD over there or Blu-ray. Right. Um, and it's only just been released a couple of weeks ago um, on digital download here in the UK. And similarly, uh, a film I was we were talking about earlier when we were off air, The Man Standing Next, about the assassination of, of a president. A true story um, starring Lee Byung-hun. Uh, again, 2020, and it's only just coming out for digital download again now so i think everything's in flux and we may have to wait a while uh, quite a while um, for something like the humming to come out we may never see it i don't know we have access to it that's the point and uh, so we're gonna do it and if it's before release then so be it um we're not trying to be dodgy and uh, get stuff for free obviously but uh, i think we're both kind of uh, keen on uh, finishing off the series as it stands now whether that film is good or good or not but it's sort of uh, the motivation to uh, finish off the series with uh, whispering corridor six for humming even before it gets a uh, release uh, in korea hong kong or uk as you said indeed and you know it does have to be said from a personal point of view if we do cover it before it's on official digital download or blu-ray whatever you know once it once it appears i'll be buying it oh for, oh, oh for sure I'm, I'm i'm that kind of guy as well i mean yeah i'll, I'll buy something let's say we watch that uh, next month it gets released in eight months i'll pick it up as it uh, is released and then i'll let it uh, sit there i probably won't rewatch it then but i'd like to uh, be ahead in the queue and support in uh, any way i can so i'm very much uh, with you uh, so we'll uh, we'll see, but uh, the aim is to um, do an episode on the humming, and uh, I'm sure we can get some uh, notes uh, in there and all of that good stuff. So, but for now, uh, this uh, has been our uh, coverage on voice and a blood pledge, and for all your podcast on Fire Network needs, including the back catalog of what's Korean cinema, but also the back catalog of the rest of the Whispering Corridors series, Whispering Corridors, Memento Mori, Wishing Stairs, and now Voice and a Blood Pledge. All available on podcastonfire.com or wherever you get podcasts include, uh, across platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify and all that uh, good stuff. So going to keep it short and over to Paul to uh, plug his uh, website. And uh, if you like, uh, tell listeners again uh, about uh, the upcoming publicly available uh, Zoom sermon that you did. <laughs> okay, well, thanks for listening, guys. Um, you know, pop over to Hangul Celluloid com and have a little look about it. hopefully you'll find some reviews you like some interviews you like um there are a fair few interviews on the site with cast crew directors have they tried to organize the interviews across zoom that also w- would include a translator or you haven't had that sort of um, opportunity to to do it that way they've they've been talking about it but what what they've actually done is they so far most places have had people in Korea talking to people in Korea and then given people access to that. So ra- rather than it being an interview across across the ocean, um, it's just been sort of Q&As. Um, and f- everyone I've seen, um, the, the viewers 
aren't allowed to speak. So they submit their questions by text and then the person in Korea asks it. So I think this is a whole new thing for them. So, you know, it's easier for them to do it that way and have everybody in Korea doing the thing. So they're all there and then just have it almost as a live video. They've been few and far between, but hopefully things will gradually get back to normal. We, we shall see. But, you know, as I say, um, on the homepage of my site at some point over the next hopefully weeks or maybe a month um, when my recent talk for the British Korean Society uh, goes on their YouTube channel, there'll be a, a link to it, maybe a little bit of information about it. And if you're interested in the quirky side of Korean cinema rather than horror, there's a good 50 minute discussion um, and it seemed to go down well. So hopefully some of you check it out. Excellent. Excellent. This is us uh, for now. Uh, we're obviously going to plan something more than just uh, Korean horror, but uh, th this has been our uh, focus uh, uh, lately, getting this series in the can. But we obviously have other ideas, so we'll uh, hit the think tank as we all, uh, almost uh, almost always do anyway, and uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, aim is to uh, do the humming next, so uh, look forward to that. In the meantime, my name is Kenny B, and with me was Paul Quinn of Hangul Celluloid. So we're not going out with a positive grade towards the fifth movie, but we still uh, really enjoyed the series. So uh, that's always something. Yeah, and thanks for listening, guys. Now,